We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. On the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Most sermons in Advent typically focus on the nativity narratives in the Gospels, or John's prologue, or even a text like Philippians 2. While those are wonderful and magnificent passages, your pastors want to take a few psalms and display how Christ is portrayed there. Indeed, the psalms play a major role in the New Testament, from Jesus in the Gospels to Paul and even the author of Hebrews, the Psalms are vital for the grand redemptive historical narrative. It's almost as if the entire Bible has been written by a unified author who is deliberately orchestrating history for his glory and our good. At over 20 times, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. New Testament authors were clear that this Psalm was about Jesus for many reasons, but primarily because Jesus said it was about himself. At many places in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20, Jesus is answering the Sadducees' question about resurrection. You see, the Sadducees, the Sadducees did not believe in the doctrine of resurrection, bodily resurrection, that is. So after posing their best riddle, Jesus refutes them on the liveliness of God, and therefore his people. Jesus says, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. But Jesus wasn't finished with him. He returns to the Sadducees with a question from Psalm 110 to rebuke their unbelief in him. He asks, how is Christ David's son? How can David call him Lord and he be David's son? Well, as we'll see this morning, Jesus' quotation of Psalm 110 is, is very important because Jesus is not only the son of David, but David's Lord, David's priest, David's king. So, kids, this is the point of Psalm 110. When your parents ask you what the sermon was about, you can say this. It's very simple. Jesus is Lord. Verses 1 through 3. Of important note is the Davidic authorship of Psalm 110. Though not without dispute among scholars, the prescript, a Psalm of David, is original and clearly very important. Here in Psalm 110, uh, as in Psalm 12 last week, the Spirit of God is allowing us to peek into the uh, inner Trinitarian dialogue, or sort of pull back the curtain on those conversations. And he's doing this through David's prophecy in Psalm 110, particularly between the Father and the Son. Now, I want to briefly cover some, some technical issues as they will serve us and set us up for the rest of our time here in Psalm 110. The importance of Davidic authorship comes to the fore with understanding the opening line. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Now, if you're an attentive Bible reader, you'll notice that the first Lord is in all caps. Now, this, is, uh, this occurs throughout the Old Testament and is conveying the covenant name of Israel's God, Yahweh. The second Lord is not in all caps and is the Hebrew word for Adonai. Now, there are two usages of this word, Adonai, or Lord, throughout the Old Testament, but even here in our text. The first is verse 1, Adonai, and the second, verse 5, Adonai. The first reference conveys a human vice-regent or representative who derives or receives his authority from the divine counterpart. The second, verse 5, conveys the divine element, uh, David's Lord. So these occur in, in Genesis, First Chronicles, Deuteronomy, and Second Samuel throughout the Old Testament. Well, then who is this Lord that David speaks of? Whereas Jesus asks the Sadducees, how is Christ David's son? How can David call him Lord and he be David's son? Well, this Lord is told to sit at the right hand of the Lord until he makes his enemies his footstool. You see, the right hand is one of preeminence, one of power, one of authority. But this isn't just any right hand. Particularly, this is the right hand of Yahweh, God Most High. So this Lord is in the presence of Yahweh. This Lord rules and reigns and even enjoys a priest-like access to God while mediating God's power and dynamic rule over the earth. Here already we have king and priest themes in verse 1, of which the New Testament is going to fill out for us. The New Testament unravels this Lord's greatness, particularly in the person and work of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, says that he is greater than David. The author of Hebrews says he is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, and really every other Old Testament figure and institution. Luke and Paul say that he is the one whom man rejected and is now exalted at the right hand of God. The author of Hebrews prescribes his priestly intercessory office in his exalted state, where he awaits final consummation of his enemy's defeat. So, though David is Christ, though Christ is David's son, as his Lord, he is greater than David because of his exalted status and eternal nature. Okay, verse 2. David's Lord is told to rule in the midst of his enemies as his scepter goes forth from Zion. Echoing Adam's charge in the garden, the Messiah's reign will be one of faithfulness and victory. In the garden, Adam was given the charge to rule and subdue the earth through mediating God's presence with creation. Yet, as we are so well aware of, he failed miserably and brought sin and death into the created order. Now, a priest-king is necessary to conquer the evil forces, intercede for his people by mediating the presence of God, and reestablish his reign and rule. And in his victorious reign, and through his divine power, Christ's enemies will be conquered, and his people will be given life, such that they can freely, they can freely offer themselves in glad service of their king. This is the beauty of the sinner's conversion, no? We were citizens of death's kingdom, enslaved in sin. All the while, we were loving it. But our God is eternal in his power, immutable in his compassion, steadfast in his love, and bountiful in his grace. And it is this God who has descended from his heavenly throne, took on our flesh to obey for us, withstand the fiery darts of the evil one, satisfy the wrath of God against our sin, raise to life over death, and ascend on high to victory. It is this God, and only this God, who came as a babe to give life, 
to give himself to your dead and lost souls. Now, verse 3 has been translated a variety of ways throughout history and is no easy task to interpret. However, I believe the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, makes, it, makes it clear for us. This is, how it, this is how the Greek translation translates it. With you is the rule on the day of your power and the radiance of your holy ones. From, from the womb, before the morning star, I gave you birth. This translation was favored by the New Testament authors and even sometimes Jesus himself. David's Lord is the eternally begotten Son who is before the first morning star, before creation. Pastor Sam articulated the theological concept of eternal generation last week, so I won't repeat it here at length, but suffice it to say that the particular uniqueness of the Messiah is that he has his beginning, his, his life, his being, before creation from the Father. The Apostle John puts it this way in his, in his gospel. For as the Father has life in and of himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in and of himself. So the Son is eternally begotten from the Father as one in essence, will, and power. The commentator says, Begotten language is not foreign to Psalm 110 because God has promised that he would relate to the Davidic king in a father-son relationship. So the gist of what the Spirit is saying through David is that David's Lord is arrayed in holy garments, so also will his people be arrayed in holiness. Peter conveys this as royal priesthood in his epistle. So this royal priesthood is able to, to freely offer themselves as sacrifices because of the eternal life bestowed on them. In power, the eternally begotten Son bestows life to his people, regenerating their hearts from stone to flesh, such that they are able to freely offer themselves in glad service to the King. David's spirit-filled prophecy of the eternal reign and intercession of the priest-king, Jesus Christ, is of tremendous importance for the Christian, particularly in this Advent season. The Messiah came into this world in the same physical way that we do, as a babe, entered into the evil one's domain of darkness as the life of God. This life was the light of men. Christ's birth in the incarnation, which is signaling his eternal generation from the Father, is the very act that clothes his people in holiness and life. Christ has secured his, his kingly reign through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He has broken into the strong man's house. He has plundered it and is now transferring his people into his wondrous and beloved kingdom. All of this and more ensures that his throne, his kingdom, his reign, and his people will be unmoved and unmovable. Though there is much darkness and much sorrow, much pain, much heartache in this world, the light of life has shone into our hearts, upholding us and defending us. The prophet Micah puts it this way, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then, then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her and now she will be trampled down 
like the mire in the streets. So Christian, let us, let us live in hope. Let's live in hope with all meekness and all patience as Christ's kingdom is unfolding and awaiting consummation. Verse 4. This verse may be brief, but it quite literally opens the doorway to the entire biblical narrative. Here God is not only announcing his word, he is swearing an oath, and he is swearing it, the Messiah. As God does not change, neither will his word. He says, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this Melchizedek figure is only mentioned three times in the entire Bible. In Genesis 14, a very brief account, here in Psalm 110, one verse, and in Hebrews, where the author applies the priesthood of Melchizedek in the story of Genesis 14 to the Lord Messiah. Now, Pastor Ronnie preached uh, Hebrews 7 a while back in our Hebrews series, so I encourage you to go listen to that for a more in-depth analysis of how Hebrews understands this Melchizedek figure. But I want to get a sense of this figure for just a minute. And by doing that, I want to briefly summarize Genesis 14 for us. We are told that four kings attacked the city of Sodom. They plunder it, and they take Lot, who is Abram's nephew. Abram gets word of this and gathers just a small band of men to attack the armies and rescue Lot. After traveling hundreds of miles on foot, Abram and his small fleet accomplish their goal. They retrieve the stolen goods and bring Lot back. Now, when they return, they're met by two kings, king of Sodom and king of Salem. But in this meeting, we're told that the king of Salem, Melchizedek, brings out wine and bread to bless Abram and honor God most high, creator of heaven and earth. After the brief mention of Melchizedek, king of Sodom offers Abram the spoils and goods of the conquest. But Abram declines. He declines in allegiance to God most high. Now, a few notes. Sodom represents the wickedness of the land. In fact, it's the centrality, the central location of wickedness. So Abraham wants nothing to do with it. It was nothing to do with Sodom, only to save his nephew Lot. The king of Salem is completely different. Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, and Salem means rich sense of well-being with God and man, or in certain terms, peace. Salem should sound familiar to us, as it would later become Jerusalem. And importantly, Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and king of Salem. This should strike us as odd, because the Mosaic law forbids one individual to be a priest and king. But Melchizedek isn't falling in the line of Mosaic law. He's falling in the line, the covenantal line, of Adam and Noah as a priest-king. This line seeks to reestablish God's sovereignty on the earth in line with the divine mandate given to human beings when it was first created. Additionally, Melchizedek isn't given a lineage. We aren't told who his mother was, who his father was, who his descendants were. This is very odd for the Old Testament. Finally, Abram recognizes Melchizedek's superiority. In doing so, he pays them a tithe. Okay, so what, what's the importance, right? What importance is Melchizedek, his priest-king office, and, as we'll see, the connection to the Abrahamic covenant? Well, the author of Hebrews helps us here a little bit. Abram's denial of the king of Sodom's offer signals how Abram will receive the promise of land from God. The covenantal promises to Abraham will be apprehended by Abram via his faith in God Most High. It would not come from his own workings, king of Sodom, but by faith in God and his own provision, 
king of Salem. Thus, the Melchizedek's acknowledgement that the Lord provided the victory links to God's covenant with Abram in chapter 15 of Genesis to protect him and his descendants. The type of priesthood that will come about, uh, excuse me, that will bring about the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant is a Melchizedekian priesthood. This priesthood is full of righteousness, full of peace. It's overflowing. You see this in the name of Melchizedek. However, the Mosaic priesthood could not do this. It was insufficient. It was lacking. Hebrews notes this in chapter 6 and 7. So David recognizes that his covenant with God is the way in which the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled. In other words, David's son will assume his eternal throne and bring about the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So David recognizes that his Lord, the Messiah, will be a priest king in the order of Melchizedek. The Levite priesthood, as we notice, was insufficient and now obsolete because Christ is once and for all our great high priest and Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He surrenders himself to the business of making the one sacrifice for all time. And this sacrifice can really do the business of putting away sin. It really can. So we need this one priest to make this one sacrifice. The enemy is always trying to deceive us and undermine our faith. And we need a priest who lives everlasting to make intercession and plead our case. We need this one priest because we sin still. Once we are given life in Christ, we become more sensitized to the vulgarity of our sins. We feel more sinful than before because we have experienced the goodness of our priest king. So because of this life, we, we don't try to handle our, our own sin ourselves, nor do we try to blame shift on someone else's fault, and we take it to our staunch defender. The Messiah's priesthood and advocacy is one of unwavering intercession. It raises higher than our sins. It speaks louder than our failures. Finally, the priesthood of Melchizedek is, is permanent and eternal because its priest is permanent and eternal. Now remember that this Melchizedek figure doesn't have a lineage or a total of his father's mother or descendants. So the author of Hebrews links and shows that this Melchizedek's lack of genealogy to the, to, to the Messiah's eternality. Melchizedek, then, is a type of priest-king who paves the way, it points to the true priest-king who establishes the new and better covenant. Because Jesus is a better priest, there's a better covenant. Because Jesus is a better king, there's a better promise. Now, verses 5 through 7. The result of the Messiah's victory is foretold. But first notice the first phrase in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Now recall that we said verse 1's Lord, that reference is to the human agent. Now here, the Lord in verse 5 is signaling the divine. The Lord is at the Messiah's right hand now. In other words, we can, be, we can say the Son is at the Father's right hand in verse 1, and the Father is at the Son's right hand in verse 5. Now again, the right hand language is simply denoting strength or power, but not two separate sources or locations of power. What is being communicated here is the singular act, power and essence, of the Father and Son. If you recall, this is what Jesus speaks of in John's Gospel when he says that he, the Son, works as the Father works, and that they are working as one. 
As the Father and Son are one in essence, will, and power, so they act accordingly in the economy of creation, providence, and redemption. Theologians call this inseparable operations. Inseparable operations. The unity of the three persons in the economic works of the Trinity stems from the unity of essence of the triune God in eternity. The economic works of the Trinity in creation, providence, and redemption, it may highlight one or two or even all three of the persons. It's been seen in the, the Son being incarnated, the Spirit being given to the, to the believer to regenerate their hearts. But these works simply reveal who God is in and of himself. Unity of essence of the triune God. James Thornwell said um, very well of how we speak of God in our language. God's infinite perfections are veiled under finite symbols. It is, the, it is the only the shadow of them that falls upon the human understanding. What Thornwell is getting at is the incomprehensible, the knowable triune God. While we, not, while we may not be able to comprehend him in his essence, we can speak of him analogically. Because he has bent down and revealed himself to our creaturely minds. So speaking of him analogically is speaking of him in creaturely terms. In sum, the Father does not work alone from the Son and Spirit. The Son does not work alone from the Father and Spirit. The Spirit doesn't work alone from the Father and Son. The Father, Son, and Spirit work as one because they are one. And why does this matter? Well, one, this protects us from false conceptions of God, such as uh, tritheism or social trinitarianism, which is basically understanding God, saying that he is this based on creaturely categories. But two, it demonstrates the Almighty's sheer power and inability to be thwarted. Kings and kingdoms of this world only come and go. But our king and his kingdom stands forever. And David, David paints a grand picture for those who do not bow the knee and kiss the sun. Here, as a result of Messiah's incarnate mission, victory over death, sin, and their allies will be shattered effectively. This is made clear by the Messiah's drinking from the brook, by the way. And victory, he lifts up his head. This is, this is sort of a, a victory sign. He's drinking from the brook, and he lifts up his head. And I can't, be, I can't help but be reminded by Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. This is the third verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Three pastoral charges. First, take refuge in, hide in, the eternal priest king, the guarantor of a better covenant, the victor over the enemy. Christ Jesus, your priest king, has definitively secured your position and status before God Almighty and is right now making intercession for you at the right hand of God. In Christ, you have been raised to newness of life and seated in the heavenly places among your brothers and sisters. In Christ, you actually have victory over sin and death. You are participating in Christ's victory because you are one with him. And as such, you have been gifted with the Spirit to walk in the new and better covenant. So take refuge in him. Hide in him. Second, walk in the way of our Lord and pray for life according to his ways. In God's providence, we celebrate Christ's advent during the season of winter. 
As you know, winter, uh, nature is dead or, or is dying. And here in Kansas City, these winters can get pretty brutal now. But we know that nature's deadness isn't the end. We know that, that spring is coming. And in spring, it began to sprout life. And what a great metaphor for the Christian life. It is a long process of dying and renewal. Dying and renewal. This is really hard. But the opposite, trying to give ourselves life apart from God's life, is simply and utterly impossible. This is what the psalmist in 119 is conveying throughout. The psalmist knows that without God and his word, there is no hope for him. The psalmist confesses that God and his word are the fundamental and primary refuge from our sin, from our sorrows, and pain. Listen to verses 25 through 32 of Psalm 119. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways away from me, and graciously teach me your wall. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Third and final pastoral charge is to declare and display the gospel and glad allegiance to our king. This is, this is the commission. This is the command. Once you have been given life, you're commissioned by Jesus to share that life, to declare that life, to show how this life works itself out. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.